This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. This morning as we study in God's Word together, uh, Ben was over preaching for us uh, here recently, just within the last week or so, and he gave a lesson on um, reality, confronting, not avoiding reality. And one of the things that he said in that kind of struck a chord with me, and it made me think that maybe this sermon would be a good piggyback to that if by chance he had preached that sermon here recently as he ended in his sermon talking about how truth will set you free. And I'd like to talk about truth this morning a little bit. I'd like to know what your truth is. Whenever we look at the passage in 1 Timothy 3.14, Paul is writing to Timothy and he said, These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto you shortly. But if I tarry long, it sits thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Now, whenever Paul wrote these things to him, what we understand him to be saying is that it took him a long time to write these principles and precepts to him because they were important, because they in the church, starting with this evangelist who was teaching it to the church there, they needed to have a set of principles and rules that would shine out to the whole world, that they could look at the people in the church and they'd go, that's the house of God, that's the members of God's church, and that's how they behave. He said, this will be this pillar and ground of truth, i.e. this foundational anchor point for truth, unmoving, unchanging. You know, we understand that as we read through the Scriptures, don't we? That there is a truth and God has truth and, and we program that in one another over and over and over that there is truth and God is truth and we should be living truth and so on and so forth. But, but, but more and more today, more and more today, there's an there's a ideology inside of our world that is pervasive, that is invading even into the minds of the church that I believe has a lot of people even inside of the church questioning there is truth, right? Where once we knew there was, I think there are times whenever things might seem a little bit more gray and a little more muddied, and it's because there's ideas like this being shoved down our throats in society today. Speak your truth. I'll tell you, that's on a lot of holiday uh, gift ideas. It's on mugs, and it's on wall plaques and decorations, and it's on every uh, social media platform being bandied at bandied about is the idea that everybody has their own unique truth and that you need to speak that truth and you need to believe that truth and you need to hold on to that truth and let that truth guide you and don't let anyone dissuade you. Even if your truth is different from somebody else's truth, you follow your heart, you speak your truth. And it's an incredibly destructive and dangerous idea, the idea that truth is relative. And I'd like to start for a minute and say that this isn't a completely ridiculous and unfounded idea. Don't stone me yet. Just bear with me. Because I believe that sometimes truth is relative. That sometimes, based on perspective, moments in time, and feelings, that there is such a thing as relative truth. I'll give you a couple examples of that. I see that. Now, you may not recognize this city, but if you've driven down I-40, there's only one real city. Don't let Tulsa tell you anything else in Oklahoma City. It's Oklahoma City. 
And, they, and they've got some, what I feel like, coming from a little bitty town in Colorado, I felt like they were big buildings. This building right here, they call that the Paycom Center. That's, there's a pro ball team that plays there. And that one right there that's shaped like a big old field drill bit, that's the Devon building. Now, what I could go, I could be standing next to this building out here. You see how small these cars are right here. Me and Ben could be standing outside of the Paycom building. I could look up and go, man, this is a big building. And Ben could go, what are you talking about, man? This is a little building. Have you not seen the Devon building? That's a big building. Who's right? Who's wrong? They're both big buildings. One happens to be bigger than the other. Sometimes just based on size, some things are relatively big or small compared to something else. Sometimes based on feelings and perspective of memories, things can make truth relative. I don't know who these guys are, just so you know, but you know, I, I can relate to this. I can relate to especially the last three guys we'll talk about here in a minute. But let's just for a moment imagine that this is something that happened in the deep, deep past in somebody's glory days. And, and this fellow right here is recounting the story of this play about how he busted around the left end. He knocked a couple dudes down. They ran into one another. They fell. This guy was trailing the whole way. He ran into the end zone. He scored a touchdown. You know how he's going to remember that play? It was a great play. It was a wonderful play, right, for him. He looks good on film. He remembers scoring. He remembers the adrenaline. That's a great play. Well, let's not get carried away because there's three other people here. You got this guy, this guy, and this guy. Well, that guy right there, half a guy. That at least these three guys, they're not going to remember it the same way that the fellow with the ball did, right? Why? Because this guy's going, I couldn't catch him. If I'd have just caught him, maybe he would have won. And this guy's going, oh man, I can't believe I fell on my face. And this guy's going, why am I on my back? All these things, all this regret. And that's what kids do after plays like that. They sit over there and they play it over and over in their mind. I know, I was a sad kid like that. But that's relative truth. You see what I mean? You have a handful of different truths going around in here. Whenever you're talking about perspective, and you're talking about feelings and memory, that's one thing. It's okay to have relative truth in those moments. The problem is whenever we try to take it beyond a simple experience and we try to make that truth speak to relativity when it's based on morality. You have the idea then called moral relativism. And I'll just warn you, the first time I preached this lesson, I practiced and practiced and practiced it, and I still couldn't say that word. I got it out once. I think that's a victory. Ellen was, you know, asking me if I could say it today. Moral relativism. There's twice. All right. Moral relativism is the view that moral judgments are not absolute, but depend on various factors such as opinion, culture, and standpoint. And what you have to do is you have to believe, to believe in moral relativism, that there is not a universal or objective set of moral principles that apply in every situation and every moment. Moral relativism takes relative truth. Did I get it right? No, I didn't. All right, here we go. Moral relativism takes the idea of relative truth and it applies it to morality. And that's where we have massive problems. Now, there's a lot of ways that you can tackle moral relativity today. There's, you, can come at, you can come at it from a logic standpoint and, and external proofs from the Bible, and, and those are great sermons, and those are things that I encourage you to pursue if you haven't already because there's going to be a lot of conversations about this in the future as there already have been a lot of them taking place now. But today I'd like to approach it from the standpoint of looking about three things about moral relativism that have to be true 
in order for moral relativism to be true, and we want to see the Bible's take on it, just taking a Bible-based look at truth. Is there moral relativism? Is there, uh, is there um, subjectiveness to moral truth, or is there not? For moral relativism to be true, this has to happen first. There can be no external truth. Just like was stated in the mission there, they don't believe in something that is objectively universal in a moral code. And so for moral relativism not to be true, um, there could be no external standard. Also for, for it to be true, you cannot know the external standard. Now what that means is you couldn't find it. It's not available to the public, so to speak. And thirdly, the external standard could not be understood, even if it could be found. These are three things that have to be true in order for moral relativism to be true. And I like to tackle these just one at a time. There can be no external standard. You know, people have lived that way before. We see it today, but I'll tell you, God's people have lived that way before. When you look at the book of Judges, Judges 17 and verse 6, he said that in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I'm, I'm going to tell you something. I've heard people take this verse out of context, and we'll come back to the idea of it here in a minute, and they'll say, see, God's people, they just did what they thought was right, and everything was okay. When you get to look at the history of Israel and the Hebrews, you'll find out whatever people did exactly what they wanted. Not everything was okay. But you've got a lot of people in the world today that they believe that. You do you and I'll do me, right? You stay out of my way, I'll stay out of your way. You believe what you want, I'll believe what I'll want. And we'll all live in harmony, right? We're trying that right now. Is it working out well? It's not working out well in our society. That everybody has their own truth and own set of a moral code and standards to live by. It's chaos. And you think about why it's chaos. Proverbs 12 and 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkens to counsel is wise. Now, I'm not sitting here today calling anybody out and calling them a fool. What I'm, tech, what I'm just doing is I want you to think about this idea. Is that everybody wants everyone to have their own truth until some fool out there disagrees with them. You know what I'm saying? And the sad truth is, I might be that fool. You might be that fool sometimes, disagreeing with somebody else on this moral standpoint. We can't agree on the most simple things, you know? There are basic, basic things that we, we can't agree on at times. I was talking with some of the guys about remodeling this morning a little bit. I don't know which way you guys put your electrical sockets on. But I've seen some guys who, I mean, they just, they absolutely state that the, the little third prong's got to be up. Drives me nuts, right? It's got to be down. In fact, I'm pretty sure there is a code on that one. Let's go into something that's even sillier than that. You know, what about the toilet paper roll in the bathroom? Is there a right way and a wrong way to put that on? I mean, is there a book, a code out there that says, thou shalt only put the toilet paper on with the loose leaflet folding over the top, and thou shalt never bring it from the bottom? There isn't. There's not a booklet. There's no instruction manual on that. But for a long time in our marriage, there was a war happening <laughs> between Ellen and I. And it, wasn't, and it was an unspoken war. I mean, I... I, mean, I Every time I went into the bathroom, it was coming from the underneath. And I'm just telling you the right way to do it is from over the top. That's, that's the code in my mind. And so I'd come through there, and, and I'd turn it over, and I'd put it the right way. Well, just a couple of years ago, in fact, Ellen tried to trap me in this conversation right here. She wasn't really a trap. I'm joking. But Ellen was saying, are there things that I do that bother you? And I was like, hmm. <laughs> no, thank you. 
And, uh, and she just kept on, kept on. No, really, I want to know. And she meant that sincerely. Let's give her credit. She meant that sincerely. She wanted other things I needed to improve, and I appreciate that about her. And what I came up with, you know, is, hey, you know in the bathroom, <laughs> that toilet paper roll and the way it goes over. And she goes, really? There's a right way and a wrong way? You know what I, I realized later is that we talked about the right way and a wrong way, and I never talked about what the right way was. And so I had gone in there and I'd corrected it in the bathroom and she went in there and thought, oh, it's on the wrong way. So it got even more aggressive, the toilet paper roll going the wrong way there for about a month. And finally I was like, what's the deal with this? Are you messing with me? And hey, look, we have our different way of doing things on the most basic and silly things, things that rub people the wrong way. But whenever you start talking about moral ways of living and moral codes, it matters. It matters a lot more on whether or not it's easy to pull that toilet paper off the roll without it wadding up on the floor because you pulled too hard and it wouldn't stop. It matters more than that. You know why it matters more than that? Because you start getting into the way that people treat their spouses. Is it morally wrong for a man to abuse his wife? Really? If there is no moral code, how can you tell them no? Is it really wrong for someone to be abusive towards a child? Really? If there's no moral code, how can we say no? Tax evasion or murder or any number of other things, how could it be wrong if everybody has their own truth? Morality, it doesn't make sense if morality has no standard. And you know what? There is no human. There is no human alive or that has ever lived that can create a standard good enough that can be universal across all humanity. But there is one God who can, and He is the standard. You know, I know people, people during the time of the judges, they lived like there wasn't a standard, but there was a standard. They weren't doing righteousness. You look in Joshua 22 before they, as they come into this land, Joshua says, take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law. And he's talking a very similar terminology of Deuteronomy 11. You remember whenever Moses, he said, I offer to you a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey, a curse if you disobey. He references that, which Moses, servant of the Lord, charged you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of His way, to keep His commandments, and to cleave unto Him and to serve Him with all your heart and with all of your soul. He said, there is a standard, and you need to pay attention to it. These people weren't just living by the law of the jungle and the law of nature by just doing whatever they wanted and, and, and following their own truth. They were in, they're in direct, direct violation of God's law whenever they do something against it, because there was a standard. Well, that was a long time ago. That's an ancient writing. That was an ancient people. They weren't civilized. They weren't technologically advanced. They weren't, they weren't socially advanced like we are today. There's a standard today too, folks. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And that statement still stands today. Don't you believe it? There is a standard. And whenever people try to tell you that there isn't, know that Christ is. Christ is the standard. And He's made the standard. And it's our duty to look to this standard. I'd say that tenet one is already disproven if we're looking to biblical proofs. That there is one set of standard. That there is one moral standard. But let's just say that someone goes on and they say, okay, I'll grant you that. And I'll say, there is a standard and Jesus has written that standard and applies to all people and this, that, and the other. But 
you can't really find what that standard is. There is so much gray area. I hear that terminology bandied out around a lot. Now, don't get me wrong. There are judgments every now and then inside of the scriptures and the way that we live our lives. But even the judgments that we ourselves make inside of our marriages, inside of our homes, inside of the churches, they have to be based on principles that are from the scripture. They're not something we come up with on our own. And people will go, yeah, but you couldn't really know. You can't know it. You can't find the standard. People have acted that way for a long time. That was kind of what Pilate did in the situation where Jesus is on trial. Pilate said to him, are you a king then? You remember that Jesus answered. He said, thou sayest, I'm a king. And to this end, I was born. And for this cause came into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what's truth? What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to him, I find no fault in him. And, and one of the things that Pilate is doing is something that a lot of people do nowadays. Even if you confront them with facts about the Scripture and Jesus being the way, truth, and life, they're going to sit and go, yeah, but who can really find the truths of this? How can you really find this one set of standard there and, and really know it and understand it? There's a lot of people who believe that even if there is this full moral code, it's just, it's not obtainable by man. And we can't get our hands or our mind wrapped around it. But I'll tell you that our God is a God who desires all men to know the truth. First Timothy 2.4, Paul said, God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, let me ask you a question. What kind of, what kind of manipulative maniac would God have to be to have this code, this moral standard that all men had to look to, observe, and keep, and then he would go, but you know what? They're not going to be able to find it. I mean, that's messed up. Yeah, I, you ever hid, anybody got kids in here, you ever hid Easter eggs for them? You know, whenever they're little, I mean, you really want them to find the egg. You notice that when they're really small, you want them to find every single one. And so when you place it on the ground, you place it like right in the middle of the room and they find it. You go, oh my goodness, how did you find that? Good job. And then as they get older, you're like, I'm going to hide it so good they can't find it. <laughs> you know, and you're looking for all these secret places that you can stash them and and it's like this challenge. And I'll tell you, God has not sent us on some cosmic Easter egg hunt. That's not what He's doing. He's not hiding it here and there and keeping it just out of our reach and tantalizing us with, with some goodness that is just, just right there, but we can't find it. That's not who He is. He not only desires for us to know the truth, He, he wants us to have this truth because He knows it will profit us. Proverbs 2, verses 2 through 5, He says, So that thou incline thy ear, so that... So that thou incline thine ear into wisdom, apply thy heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as hid treasures, thou shalt then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now, you remember some of the, some of the first gospel sermons that were preached in the Scriptures, particularly the ones to the Gentiles. Remember he talked to... Uh, the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. But in Acts chapter 17, as he's talking to all those multi-God worshiping Athenians, and he said, who is not very far from you? Talking about that unknown God, right? When he talked to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, as he starts that book, he talks about a God who was right there in his creation, wasn't very far from us. And this standard and the knowledge that our God has for us, it's not very far from us. But the truth is, it will take some work. 
It's not hidden so carefully so God can have his aha speed trap moment. You know what I'm talking about there? Where you're driving down the road and you didn't see it because that municipality in that tiny little bump in the road town had taken the speed limit sign and they hit it behind a bush. And then the cop can pull out and nab you. That's not God. God said, I want you to be saved because that's what this moral code will do through the gospel itself and grace. But he said, I want you to find it. And he's going to make it, he's made it able so that we can find it. It's not a Pez dispenser. We sit there and we need to study his word. We need to treasure it. We need to look and we need to search. Do you really want it? Do you want it so bad? Do you treasure it? Is it, is it this pearl of great price that you'll give up everything else in the world for? He said, then you'll find it. Seek it like silver. Cry after it. Pray for it. You want the knowledge, you can find it. And then again, I think we can, we can know and we see that the second leg of or tenet of moral relativism is not true. But someone could say, okay, let's just say that there, is no, that there is an external standard, and let's just say, okay, some by miraculous miracle you found that cosmic Easter egg, but if you find it, you can't really understand it. You know, even people who claim to be God's people for a long time have claimed that God is hard to understand. You know, you look at this passage right here. I'm not getting into a theological discussion on this, but I want you to look at what the Pharisees did in Matthew chapter 19. They had a covetousness problem and a hard heart problem. And he says in Matthew 9 and 3, 19 and 3, the Pharisees came to him tempting him, saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Jesus gave an answer about from the beginning how it was. And in verse 7, they said, Then why did Moses command them to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? And, and we're not getting into the subject, but what I'm trying to see here is that these people, they looked at the laws of God and they thought, it's so complicated, it's so messed up that this dude, he's not going to be able to answer this right. And we're going to find some occasion against him. That's what they were looking for, right? Some way to excuse themselves and some way to put Jesus down. And that's how a lot of people look at the Bible like it's this, it's this big tangled web and they, they read and they go, I could never understand this. There's been Christian quote-unquote religions who have told their own constituents, you can't understand this, leave it to the professionals. This isn't a new concept of people believing that the standard can't be deciphered or understood. But can it be? Well, if he wants us to find it and he says we can find it, why would he not want us to understand it? Look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. He said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable. It's profitable for teachings. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, duly furnished unto all good works. You know, Whenever God looks at this law and this standard and this moral code of righteousness that His Son was going to lay out perfectly through His Word, He said, I'm giving you something that isn't just this, this antique writing that you can put in, in museums to say this is ancient script. And it's not just about putting on our coffee tables and showing off in that sense, but it is something that whenever you read the words, you find something that will benefit you in all that you do in your pursuit of godliness. And we see that in the scriptures, don't we? We see practicality in the way that we live our life or should live our life. 
We see the way that God's truths are present and helpful just in humanity in general over and over and over again. They wanted to lay the transatlantic cable. You know what helped them figure it out? A dude got to reading about the channels of the deep. And so they laid that transatlantic cable in a way that it followed those curves and it wasn't snapped anymore. There's when they wanted to know about, is the earth flat or square? You look at the scriptures, the answer was there, the spheres, right? I mean, over and over, there's all these external proofs that God's, God's Word is right and it's true and it can be understood and it's practical even for scientific adventure. But then you look at it inside of relationships and inside of homes and inside of dissipating depression and guilt and fears and overcoming obstacles. Over and over and over, God's Word proves itself to be profitable to, profitable to mankind, to you and to me. And He's not hiding it. He's not keeping it away from us, and He's not making it so complicated that we can't glean the benefit of His great glorious standard. Psalms 119 says that the entrance of your word giveth light. It gives understanding unto the simple. You know that's what the Word of God does? Is that whenever you use the Word of God, it sheds light and makes things clearer in life. I love the way that he phrases that there. Psalms 119 is like one big love letter to the Word of God and His truth. It's beautiful. And then when he says at the end of that passage, he says it gives understanding to the simple. Now, he's not trying to be, um, he's not trying to be derogatory or run anybody down, but I think he's talking about people like me. People who are even uneducated and simple in the way that they think. And he said, it gives understanding to these type of people. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know Hebrew. You don't have to know Greek. You have to be somebody who has desire to seek the truth. And this truth will help you. For all the people out there in the world saying that his truth can't be understood, that it can't be found, that it doesn't exist we find over and over and over that it's the simple people of this world that God has lifted up with His truth. And He'll continue to do with that with His Word. The standard can be understood by anyone. It's not a Da Vinci Code. Also a good piece of apostasy there. So the standard can be understood by anyone. And I look and time and time again and I see that Whenever you're trying to defend moral, to moral relativism, it just doesn't hold up. There is an external standard in His Christ and His truth and His gospel and, and that we can find the external standard. It's right there so close to us if we'll put our time and focus and attention to it and, and that the external standard can be understood even, even by those who are simple or, or uneducated in their learning. And I look at this and go, well, what is the truth about moral relativism? If it's not true, what's the truth about it? And, and what I believe is, is this right here is that it's people who are presented the truth but they choose to reject it and that's not just an opinion it's something that God spoke about on a number of occasions you look at Matthew 21 verses 22 through 26 we'll come back to it here a couple times here but Jesus was come to the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people came um, came to him as he was teaching and they said by what authority Doest thou these things? And who gavest thee this authority? And Jesus answered and he said to him also will I ask one thing Excuse me, which you've, if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things, the baptism of John. Whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reason within themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say unto us, Why did ye not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. They came and they rejected truth. 
He had been teaching, and, and he hadn't been just teaching. It wasn't just words of Jesus. You know what is so powerful about the prophecies of Christ is the things that, that happened to him as he was born, the things that he did over and over and over, prove the things that have been said hundreds and thousands and over a thousand years before him were true, and that he was who he said he was. And God testified that he was speaking the truth by doing all these marvelous and incredible works, that if they denied them, they were blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit something that God said could not be forgiven or wouldn't be forgiven. He proved over and over and over that He spoke truth, and still they came and they questioned and they questioned and they questioned because they didn't want it. They just didn't want the truth. And that's the fact of the matter, that to believe in moral relativism is to just simply not want real truth in your life and people do incredible and even sometimes horrible things to make sure that they can cling on to their own truth and not hold to the truth of God. Isaiah 39 through 11, he said, this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that won't hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and the prophets prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get you out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to turn his face from before us. And you, you, look, you look at this progression here and what these people do and what they say, and you go, this is, this is madness, isn't it? And this isn't random people out here. This is God's people. These are the Israelites. And these people, they said, I don't want truth anymore. They said, in fact, in fact, I don't, I don't want you to tell me what the right thing is. Now, sometimes hearing the right thing is hard. Sometimes the truth hurts because sometimes the truth comes in a package of rebuke or correction where we need to change our life and get right with God. But the Bible says that's profitable, right? We read about that earlier. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be duly furnished. All good works, right? And sometimes we don't like it, so we can understand where someone is going, just don't tell me the truth, the truth hurts. But then you look at them here, they say, just tell us smooth things. And we got a world, a religious society in the world today that that's all they'll do. You got preachers on TV, when, when they're asked about why they don't say the word sin, he'll go, people don't really want to be drugged down by that. People know they're sinful. I don't need to say it. Well, Jesus said we should. Jesus said, I need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we want easy things, but people would rather have smooth things. And then you get to the point where he says, prophesy, just, just don't even, just tell me something that's a lie. Can you, can you imagine that? Sitting, sitting in a pew and hearing a lie and knowing it's a lie and going, now that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I don't think people rationalize it that way. You know what I'm saying? People don't sit there and say, I love the lie. That lie is so good. It feels so sweet. It feels so right. But they convince themselves that the lies are the truth. Why? Because they would rather have the deceit than to know the truth. And it's one thing about making sure that everybody else is saying that right thing to you and telling you lies. You want to take it and you want to turn it to where everybody else believes the lies as well. And that's the progression that our society is in right now, isn't it? 
Not just saying don't say the truth, not just saying there isn't truth, but saying actually your truth is the lie. Isaiah 5, 20-21, Woe unto all them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And this is what we see happening. Is that people take and they label the things that are wrong good and the things that are right wrong. And they're not content to just, to just believe that themselves. I mean, don't, don't let the world fool you whenever they say, you do you, boo-boo, and I'll do me. They don't want that. They're not happy with that. They will not be happy until you are broken and your knee is bowed to the God of lies and the God of immorality. And they will scream it from the mountaintops and from the news channels and from the social media platforms and from the pulpits all over the world. They are. They will. And that's moral relativism. Moral relativism isn't okay with everybody having their own truth. It wants everyone to believe the truth that God is not the truth. It doesn't matter how many times you say it, the truth is the truth, even if no one believes it in a lie and is a lie, even if everyone believes it. Moral relativity is a lie. There is truth. So what do we do? We understand these things, don't we, brothers and sisters, that there is truth and, and we can find the truth and we can even know the truth. We understand that sometimes the truth is hard, even hard for you and me, ourselves. What do we do with this message, though? I think the first thing that we need to do, knowing that we live in a world that's more and more relative in its understanding, comprehension, and desire for truth, that we need to be equipped. Psalms 119, 29-30 says, Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments are laid before me. You have a, a, a conscious mindset here that he said, I want truth, right? It, this is the opposite of the mindset that we read about in Isaiah chapter 5, right? Somebody said, I, I don't want the lies. So if you will, make it clear to me and remove from out of my eyesight, get it out of my way, get it out of my mind, get it out of my life, the things that are lies. And he said, grant me your law graciously. And I find that to be an interesting piece of this passage here. I know I don't have it highlighted on here, but it's a gracious thing to have law and truth in our life. Because that's where life comes from, from the way, the truth, and the life. That's how we get to see the Father, right? That's graciousness. And he said, I have chosen the way of truth. We need to prepare ourselves with a choice to make sure we know what truth is. Will you know truth? When your next moral dilemma is presented to, to you or your spouse or your children or your coworkers, will you know the truthful teaching in the moment, the truthful decision that needs to be made, will we be able to make the right decision? Well, we have to choose to make sure that we have that truth in our life. That's how we handle this idea of moral relativism. And then we need to be prepared with that in our hearts so that we can, we can help, with, help other people and contend earnestly for that truth. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17, he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an answer 
ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you, um, accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evildoing. And there's a lot of times we focus just on this part here, and I think it's important that we need to be ready to contend for the faith. We need to be ready to contend for truth. And we can't do that if truth isn't locked in our heart, if we haven't made our life all about that reality. We're just not going to be ready. I'm not saying that you've got to have an answer every moment, in every moment, at every question, but are you equipped to be able to go find the answer? I mean, there's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of respectability and someone will say, I don't know, but I'll go find out the answer. That's one of the ways that you prepare your heart for that. And I believe that a lot of people respect that rather than just running off of the mouth, which I'm apt to do at times. And he says, and he goes on as he talks about this earnestly contending for it, he, he tells us what's going to happen. He says, if that truth's in your heart and that, those answers are God is locked away in your heart and it's right, you're right with what you're teaching, they may speak evil about you. They may do all manner of evil against you. That's what Jesus said, right? He said, but one day they'll be ashamed may not be now, it may not even be in this lifetime, but one day they'll be ashamed. You'll stand before your God justified because of the truth and the blood of the Lamb. We need to contend earnestly. Now, what we don't need to be is gotcha journalists. That's not who Jesus was. You think Jesus contended for truth? I, I think He contended for truth. I think He stood for truth everywhere He went. He spoke for truth, but He was not this gotcha journalist who was always looking to, um, to com be combative with people. We read Matthew 21, and we read through verse 26, and we'll just look at it here again in a moment. But the end of that passage where the people come to him, and they said, What authority do you do these things? And he said, Well, the baptism of John, heaven or hell. You remember that one? Or it's from heaven or a man or what have you. And at the end of it, they wouldn't answer him, and they said, We cannot tell. And Jesus said to them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. What you and I need to understand is not everybody, not everybody wants to have an honest conversation. And that's the truth. Not everybody really wants to know the truth. They just want to fight. Man, I, I had, just to be honest, I had a guy like that in my life when I was a salesman out in Lubbock and nice guy in a lot of ways. And this fellow that I knew, he spent like seven or eight years going to divinity school, I think is what they called it. And he was studying Bible and all these things. And by admission, he wasn't studying because he wanted to be closer to God. By admission, he was studying because he wanted to argue with people like me. And I'll tell you, that was for a young guy, for someone to just say that to my face and watch him play that out over a handful of years, that was hard to come to grips with. And it's hard for you and I to come to grips with that there's going to be people that we encounter in life that their mission is not to learn truth and not to have an honest and open dialogue, but they just want to fight. Don't fight. We're always told to make sure that our words are spoken with grace and that they're seasoned with salt, right? And if people want the truth, we should talk to them. We can talk to them, but don't, don't, don't get in arguments. Don't get in fights with people. Don't go back to the fight every single time with people. Jesus wasn't going to do it, and we shouldn't either. Let's follow His lead. What we need to know about truth is that the truth is not a trap. And that's the way these guys felt in Matthew 20, wouldn't, didn't they? 
You remember as Jesus laid that out, they reasoned within themselves and they thought, man, we're between a rock and a hard place. If we say that it's from heaven, then they'll say, why aren't you believing him? And if we say it's of man, they'll say then, you know, they'll stone us or something because they think John is a prophet and he is of heaven. And so they felt like Jesus was trapping them. At first glance, it may look like that, but that's not what he was doing. You know what he was doing? He was presenting truth in a package where they had an opportunity to acknowledge it, to drop their preconceived ideas and to to drop the things that they knew weren't making sense and to just accept the truth, that it was a teaching from heaven and that they could have that teaching from heaven, that it wasn't about them versus me, that it was Jesus for the world and it was heaven for the world. And they chose, instead of receiving that, to just view the truth as this trap that would bind them and hold them captive. But really, it's the only thing in this world that can set you free from this world. John 8, 31 through 32, Jesus said to the Jews who believed on Him, If you continue in My word, then you're My disciples indeed. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's what the world needs. They may not want it. They may not like it. They may be crying out against it, but that's what they need right now. They need the truth, a truth that isn't a trap, a truth that can be known, a truth that can be found, a truth that can be understood, and a truth which is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the only way that people will ever make it through this life into the next one. The gospel will set people free, and you and I need to share that gospel with people to the best of our abilities. And this morning, if you're sitting here and you're fighting against the truth in one way or the other, whether it's a gospel or it's some type of immorality in your life, don't fight against the truth. Come to Christ. Come to that standard and let that standard save you and send you home to your Father in heaven Sunday. Let your need be known. Sit on this front pew while we're led in this song of invitation. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.